Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us. You're uh, a good father who gives good gifts, that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so we're grateful for an opportunity this morning to gather together and to think about your nature and character and works and uh, hopefully by your grace through the work of your spirit uh, have our lives conformed to the image of your son and so pray that you would use this class that you would use uh, preschool and elementary classes going on currently that you would use uh, our uh, worship service at 10:30. all of these things lord you would use to make us look more like your son it's in his name we pray amen well, good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class, where all semester we are talking about what we're calling applied theology in, uh, in technical terms. If you're looking this up uh, in like uh, actual theological work and you want to know the technical term, it's uh, practical theology, or it's basically Discipleship 101. So today we want to talk about an aspect of discipleship that is the discipline of Serving. I want to begin by asking a question. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a, uh, a holy place of another religion. So you've ever been into a mosque or a temple or a synagogue or something like that. Okay, then put your hands down. Now, raise your hand if you've ever been into a particular type of temple where the worshipers there will bring in some sort of a gift to their various gods. Maybe they could bring uh, gifts of food or drink or something like that. Anyone ever been to one of those types of temples? Kind of like uh, leaving out uh, cookies and milk to Santa or something like that. So what's the idea there? Whether you've been to those kind of temples or not, you've probably heard them or you've read about them in the Old Testament or something like that. What was the idea behind uh, that? Well, those kind of lowercase gods, the gods of the... Hindus or whoever it might be, those lowercase gods, they're really busy. They're really busy. They're doing all these God things, and so they need your help. They need constant refreshment, constant uh, nourishment, and that's where you come in. You bring your goat or whatever it might be, and you serve your little God so he can give you rain, or he can give you a child, or he can give you victory in war, or whatever it might be. And the Bible actually addresses that kind of conception of the divine, of, uh, of God. When the Apostle Paul writes in Acts 17, this is in your notes, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So notice that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He needs nothing. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He created the world. He owns all things. He's sovereign over all things. He is the only being in the world that this can be said of. He is the only being in the world that is self-sufficient. You and I add nothing to God. And we take nothing from God. He is completely, he is totally self-supporting. This is the implication of a doctrine that's called God's aseity, that is his self-existence. So do we serve God? Theologically, the answer to that is yes, but why do we serve God or how do we serve God? Certainly not because God needs something. Certainly not because of any insufficiency or any deficiency in God because God needs nothing. God lacks nothing because he needs nothing. He is the most free being in the world to give everything. Because God needs nothing, he is the most free being in the world to give. Thus, the biblical depiction that we get from Genesis all the way through Revelation is a picture of a God who serves his people. And that's actually a complete inversion of the way that most religions think of their gods of the way that most religions conceive of the divine. Most other religions of the world think that the gods are served by man. But in Christianity, God is really the one who serves his people. Rather than a help-wanted sign on the gates of heaven, there is a help-available sign there. So when mankind sins, 
what does God do in the book of Genesis? He serves Adam and Eve. He clothes them with animal skins. When Abraham is without an heir, what does God do? He serves Abraham by helping him, by giving him an heir. When Israel is lamenting in slavery in Egypt, what does God do? He serves them by leading them out in the Exodus, out of uh, Egypt and into the Promised Land. When that same people are hungering and they're thirsting in the desert, what does God do? He serves them. He serves them manna. He serves them water from a rock. When mankind is enslaved to sin and death, God sends his son to serve them, to help them, to offer them life. So from beginning to end, the story of the gospel is the story of a God who serves his people. Look at Isaiah 64, 4. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Again, this is the exact opposite of the myths of the pagan gods. The pagan gods wait on their people to act for them. God is the one who acts for us, so we have only to wait for him. God is the initiator. God doesn't react, he acts, he works, he serves, he helps. And this picture of this God who serves his people is really good news to the weak, but it's really bad news to those of us who might think that we're self-sufficient. As Jesus says in Mark 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we see this picture of a God who serves his people throughout scripture. So when we come to Jesus, who is the son of God, we should expect him to mirror those same attributes because he is the perfect manifestation of his father. He is the perfect manifestation of God's character. He's the image of the invisible God, as Colossians says. He's the exact imprint of his nature, as Hebrews says. So as God serves, as the triune God serves, so does the Son of God. And we see Christ as servant all over the place. In fact, even the act of the incarnation was an act of servitude. It's an act of humiliation. Look at Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even the act of taking on humanity is, a sense, is in a sense humbling for God. The thing that you and I boast in, our humanity, that's actually a humbling thing for the Son of God. You see this same sort of attitude of service in countless examples as you read the Gospels, such as when Jesus is exhausted in the story of uh, John chapter 4. He's exhausted, he's waiting there by the well, and yet he takes the time to serve the Samaritan widow by offering her living water. Or one of the best uh, sort of narratives for seeing Jesus as a God who serves is, uh, is the story in John 13. He lays aside his outer garment, he takes up a towel, and he washes the feet of his disciples. But you see this not only in those stories, you see it also when Jesus is healing the lepers, or when he is uh, healing the sick, or he's casting out demons, or he's calming the storm and feeding the masses. What's he doing? He's showing compassion. He's showing concern. He's helping. He's serving others. But the best illustration of Christ serving his people is in his offering up his life for theirs. Look at Mark 10, 42 through 45. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. I love that last line. If you want a picture of who Jesus is, who is Jesus? He is the one who serves. 
Now, why is this little exploration, this little journey through the, the, the character and the acts of the triune God and the Son of God in particular, why is that important? Because as we've seen throughout this semester, discipleship is really this process of being conformed to the image of Christ. Discipling someone is helping someone in their journey to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so if Christ serves, then so should we. A disciple who doesn't serve isn't really a disciple. He's not really someone who's following after Christ, not someone who's imitating Christ. You might be a Christian and not serve people, but you're not a very good one. So what we want to talk about this morning is an applied theology of serving. To do so, I want to ask and attempt to answer four questions. Why should we serve? Uh, Who should we serve? Where should we serve? And then how should we serve? Those are the four questions that we're going to attempt to answer today. We'll begin with why we should serve. Motivations and reasons why we should serve. The first one should be rather obvious to you, and that is because God commands it. That should be most apparent, that should be most obvious, because really everything that we're talking about this semester is because God commands it. He commands us to apply our theology to our lives. He commands us to practically implement the theological concepts that we see in Scripture. He commands us to be disciples. That's the Great Commission, that we are to go and make disciples. All right, We aren't just making things up that seem wise to us this semester. We're simply telling you all semester long what God demands of his people. And then hopefully offering a few helpful hints for how you can actually implement this, how you can actually obey this. So he commands prayer. We talked about prayer. He commands reading scripture. We talked about that. He commands rest. He commands disciplining your kids. We'll talk about that later in the semester. All the other topics we're talking about this semester are things God commands, including serving. And the way that he he commands serving is sometimes really explicitly. All right, look at uh, Romans 12. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Or Galatians 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not let your freedom, uh, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Or 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But when it comes to understanding God's expectation, God's commands for us as it relates to serving, you can't merely look for examples of the explicit phrase, serve one another. As we've just seen, that phrase is in the scripture explicitly. That's not the way that we actually study a concept. We don't just look for particular words. We look for the larger concept. And that command, that concept is implied in countless other commands. When you hear a command like to encourage one another, when you hear commands like love one another or bear one another's burdens or pray for one another, Jared talked about a lot of these one another's. In fact, I think he gave you a a whole list of them in the notes last week as we talked about community. Those are the ways in which we are to serve one another. When we pray for one another, when we love one another, when we do these acts toward one another, we are serving one another. So it's implied in all of these other commands that we see in Scripture. It's also implied in the various demonstrations or depictions of the character of God himself and the examples we already talked about of the, the Son of God in the Scriptures, and then other godly men and women in Scripture. So the first reason that we are to serve is because God commands it. He does so both explicitly and then also implicitly. A second reason we are to serve is in order to imitate Christ. Right? We've talked about this before. I mentioned it even earlier. Discipleship is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to wear sandals or we have to move to Nazareth because that's where Jesus lived or something like that. But it does mean that we are to imitate his character, to be conformed to his morality and to his ethics and to his desires and to his thoughts and passions and so forth. We are to walk like Jesus walked. We're to imitate him. 
For example, Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or John 13, I mentioned this before. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I, I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So one of the primary pictures, talked about this before, one of the primary pictures that Scripture paints of the ministry of Christ is of service. This isn't peripheral, this isn't tertiary, this isn't incidental to his ministry. Service is his ministry. And thus, if you want to imitate Christ, this has to be primary in your life. If you can teach or preach like Jesus, if you can do miracles like Jesus, if you can gather crowds like Jesus, but you don't serve like Jesus, then you're not really like Jesus. Service is central. It's essential to the mission and character of Christ. And thus, discipleship entails serving. So that's the second reason. The third reason is in order to serve God. Now, don't misunderstand this. We just talked about before. God isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. But that doesn't mean that we don't serve him in another sense. We don't serve him to give him something, but we do serve him in another sense. For instance... Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That assumes that you should be serving God. Or Luke 4, 8, Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus says we should serve. So we are to serve God. Again, not because of any deficiency or insufficiency in him, but nevertheless, we are to serve him what does that mean? Well, the word most often translated as serve in Scripture is also translated a number of times as worship. It's actually the same word in Greek. It's actually the, the derivation of our word liturgy, which is kind of an order of worship within a church. So service is a form of worship. So what's really interesting is that we serve God not by offering Him gifts that He lacks, Rather, the primary way that Scripture depicts us serving God is by serving His people. Look at Matthew 25, 33 through 40. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will answer him, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, for you to serve your neighbor, you are by implication worshiping and serving God. You are mirroring the nature of a being whose love is directed outwards. That's the, that's the great commandment, right? To love God and then to love others. You're imitating God. That is who God is in his very nature. He is a God whose love flows uh, outwards. So those ideas are connected. Another reason that you are to serve is as a discipline to mortify, mortify your flesh. We talked about this when we talked about reading the Bible we think of the discipline of reading the Bible just as the content we get from the Bible. But one of the things we talked about is sometimes the discipline itself actually contributes to our sanctification. Sometimes the discipline itself, the act of reading, is uh, what contributes to our sanctification. Yes, you're sanctified by what you read when you read Scripture. But also when we read, that act in and of itself has spiritual benefits. The act of you getting up early crucifies laziness. The act of you choosing to read rather than watch TV crucifies your lust for entertainment, whatever it might be. In other words, not only the content of spiritual disciplines is what sanctifies us, sometimes the discipline itself is transformative. 
And the same is true when it comes to serving. By serving others, we don't merely serve God and others. We actually, in a sense, serve ourselves in a spiritual sense because we're mortifying our lust for pride, for ease, for comfort, for convenience, and so forth. As Richard Foster writes, we're going to quote from him a number of times. Uh, he's, he's got a really classic book on spiritual disciplines. There's some good stuff in there. There's some not so good stuff, but uh, he has an entire chapter on the, uh, on the discipline of service. So we'll quote, quote from him a number of times. He says, nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service but screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service rendered. If we stoutly refuse to give in to the lust of the flesh, we crucify it. So serving others is this way to be killing sin, as John Owen would put it. That's a fourth reason to serve. A fifth reason is for eternal reward. Anyone ever heard of the uh, 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant? Kant, okay. Kant, one of his contributions to philosophy was the idea that the value of a moral act decreases, the value of a moral act decreases proportional to the benefit that we receive from it. All right, that's kind of complicated. In other words, what he's saying is that good works are only good if the doer is relatively disinterested, if they don't get anything out of it. If I help my neighbor mow his lawn, but secretly I really love mowing the lawn, then according to Kant, that's not really a good deed because I got something out of it. I got the joy of doing something that I actually loved. It's a really interesting philosophical idea. It's terribly unbiblical. Right? In fact, it is explicitly biblical to act for your own joy. Consider how often the Bible implores us to seek our own joy and reward. Hebrews 11.6, the definition of faith, the closest we come to a biblical definition of faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe, A, that he exists, and B, that he rewards those who seek him. Acts 20.35, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to Receive. In other words, there is a blessing that we are to chase after. Or Philippians 3.8, Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We're not just giving something up, we're gaining something. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Or Jesus in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice it's not the desire for reward that's being rebuked here. It's the desire for earthly temporal reward as opposed to heavenly permanent eternal reward. Make no mistake, we are to seek after rewards. John brought us said, the minister may lawfully appeal to the desire for happiness and its negative counterpart, the dread of unhappiness. Those philosophers, like Kant, who insist that we ought always to do right simply and only because it is right are not philosophers at all. For they are either grossly ignorant of human nature or else indulging in mere fanciful speculations. So we are to seek after reward and that certainly applies to serving. We see that connection a number of times in Scripture. For example, Matthew 25, 21. Uh, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Or Matthew 6, 1, the, be uh, the beginning of, of chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in Heaven. So at least part of the motivation for serving is that we're laying up treasures in heaven. We're laying down our privilege. We're laying down our temporal comfort. We're laying down our uh, convenience and so forth. But with an end in sight, there's a goal. That's what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians lately, in fact. That goal is the hope of resurrection. 
That's what makes sacrifice. That's what makes service worth it. That's why we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Otherwise, as Paul writes, we are to be pitied of all people. So why should you live a life of serving others, at least for these five reasons that we talked about? That's the why. Now let's talk about the who or whom. Who should we serve? All right. Here we can simply say anyone you can, but let's get more specific. I'm going to mention four categories. We're going to go through these really quickly. Number one, believers. Galatians 6, 9 through 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. I don't, I don't think I need to list out a whole bunch of passages. We kind of already assume this to be true, that we should serve believers. But it's worth mentioning. In fact, it's worth mentioning because this is the primary category that Scripture will assume when it says that we are to love and serve one another. The one another there typically refers to the body of Christ, right? But that's not all. We are to also serve unbelievers, Right? We are to be salt and light. We serve them not only by doing good deeds, but also by evangelism. In fact, those often go hand in hand. Good deeds don't replace evangelism. The gospel is about word and not works, but good deeds often till the soil for the seed of the gospel to take root. A few of our members, in fact, were, were even converted because I know one in particular, a friend who happened to be a Christian, uh, gave up their time, gave up their energy to give them a ride. And so we see examples of this uh, throughout church history for a believer to simply help someone with a project or to serve them in some capacity opens their heart and begins to get them questioning things that allow for the gospel to come in and to transform them. So we are to serve unbelievers not only as an end that they would be converted, but certainly that is one of the motivations there. We are also to, to serve those who are, quote, our enemies. This is an implication of the command when Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When you pray for someone, you are serving them. But what if by serving them, they take advantage of us because they're our enemies? And the biblical answer is, so what? That's what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians. Do we not believe in the resurrection? Do we not believe in eternal justice? Do we not believe in eternal reward? That then frees us to serve even those who hate us. Right? Paul talked about this even way back in 1 Corinthians 6 when he wrote, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Again, this is possible. It's possible for us to have this attitude. This is not innate. This only comes by the work of the Spirit as we are conformed to the image of Christ. But this is possible if we think about the eternal hope that we have in resurrection. So maybe by serving others, they become our friends, or maybe we just gain heavenly reward. It isn't for us to know what God will do with our works of love. It's simply for us to be faithful and to trust him to do whatever he deems to be wise and good. Another category of who we should serve, our families. Again, this is intuitive, this is assumed, but it's worth mentioning especially because this is sometimes the hardest to do. Sometimes the people we love the most, it's actually the hardest for us to serve. At some point, it becomes difficult to serve your spouse or your kids or your elderly parents. And yet God commands us to do just that. 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We serve our families in a whole host of ways, all right? We'll talk about some of the specifics when we talk about how to serve. But this includes big picture things like discipling your, your kids, all right? Disciplining your kids, those are forms of service. But so are things like washing the dishes, making the bed, doing the laundry, taking out the trash, helping with homework, uh, teaching how to throw a ball, a billion other opportunities to serve your families. And then lastly, another category of who we should serve are just strangers. I want to mention this last group because I think it overlaps with the idea of what we talked about earlier of just serving as a discipline. All right, It overlaps with this idea of developing a habit of serving. So you, are you the type of person that generally, habitually, lets that car trying to change lanes over? Are you the kind of person who generally, habitually, holds the door open for others? 
Do you give others the right of way when driving? Do you serve your waiter or your flight attendant by being gracious and courteous? Do you serve your neighbors by not you know, parking uh, in front of their mailbox or reducing the value of their homes because you just let yours fall apart or whatever it might be? There are quite literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of opportunities to serve even strangers, even if the other person doesn't even notice it, but it still instills in you a habit of thinking of others first, a habit of serving others, and that's a really good thing. We talked earlier this semester about our character, in essence, being a bundle of habits. The more often you serve, even in these little things, like letting someone go before you in traffic, the more you serve, the more likely you will be to become the type of person who delights in serving. And the more that it kind of becomes habitual and instinctual for you. So that's the who. Let's talk about the where. Where should we serve? When people first come to Parkway, one of the most frequent questions they ask is, how can I serve? And by that, a number of them typically mean something like, what formal ministries do you have which need volunteers? In other words, where can I serve where I'll, I will have an, like an official volunteer title? I'll have a name tag. I'll have a T-shirt. And that's great. Right? We have some formal serving opportunities, but that's not really the primary way that we should think about serving. When it comes to serving, we should think about uh, uh, the image of an iceberg, all right? The tip is what you see on a Sunday in this building. But under the surface, that's really the bulk of serving. That's the lifestyle of serving. That's serving, to use the language of the Sermon on the Mount, in hiddenness, in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you, all right? Now, there certainly are opportunities to serve in the church. That's, uh, th that's true, especially in highly programmatic churches that have singles ministries and women's ministries and men's ministries and biker moms who love Bon Jovi ministries or whatever it might be. But it's also true of, uh, of what would be called a simple church model, a non-programmatic model like Parkway as well. There are a number of ways that you can formally, officially serve the church. The biggest way to serve formally is through volunteering to help in preschool. But I don't like serving in preschool. I'm not gifted in that way. We'll talk about that shortly. For now, just know I don't think that's a good excuse. I'll talk more about that when we talk about how to serve. Part of serving is simply identifying a need. And preschool has been, and it is currently, and it will probably forever be our biggest need. We're very fruitful people, all right? You've done a good job there. So we have a whole lot of kids and kind of need all hands on deck. If you're thinking that doesn't apply to me, again, hold that thought. I'll come, to, uh, I'll come back to why I think almost, almost every single one of our people should serve in preschool. With very few exceptions, this is something I think every member of our body should own. But in addition to preschool, we need group leaders. We need musicians. We need people who can help with production. We need guys who are handy, who can help the deacons with various tasks. We need women who are administratively gifted. We need all kinds of things. There are, there are a number of formal opportunities to serve. There are also informal opportunities. And there are tons of those. There are myriad informal opportunities to serve the church. When you choose to park further away and walk, that's a means of serving other people. When you pray for the church regularly, that's a means of serving the church. When you encourage other members, when you meet with other members, when you disciple other members, when you attend regularly, when you give financially, when you invite others to attend, when you meet new people who have just visited the church and you invite them out to lunch after services, all of these are ways to serve the church. You don't need a title. You don't need a formal position. You don't need our permission to be a Christian. You don't need our permission to serve others. The big point here, we mentioned this before in sermons, most people think of Sunday as game day. That's how a lot of churches kind of uh, uh, communicate their vision or philosophy of ministry. Sunday's game day. You put on your church clothes, whatever that is, depending on the church, that's your uniform. And then you play hard for a few hours, right? Sunday is the big game. That's when we serve. I don't think that's the best picture of the Christian life. 
I actually don't think Sunday is game day at all. Theologically, biblically, I actually think that Monday through Saturday, those are the game days. That's when you're out in the world serving your families and your neighbors and your coworkers and so forth. So what's Sunday? Well, biblically, theologically, I think Sunday is actually practice. What does Ephesians 4 say is the role of pastors and teachers and others in a church? It's to equip the saints for what? Anybody know? For the work of ministry. By the way, the word ministry is where we get the word deacon or servant. In other words, what we do in theological equipping class and in sermons and so forth, where we're teaching regularly, is we're equipping you for the work of serving. You have access to places and people that I don't. In your home, in your office, your kid's t-ball team, whatever it might be. So yes, we have a handful of ministries that we need help with on Sunday during services. But by and large, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. We need members who are willing to start informal Bible studies and book studies and to babysit each other's kids and to reach out to widows and single moms and to help some of our older members with uh, yard work and on and on we could go. The more that the church is the church, the more that you grasp this call for you to do the work of ministry, the more free our elders and staff are to spend time praying and prepping, thinking about how to better equip you. So again, I think that informal serving is actually where the majority of this discipline happens. So that's inside the church. That's one of the places that we are to serve. But it isn't only the church that we are to serve. We should also be serving in our offices, again, our kids' little leagues, our neighborhoods, our homes, etc. And that can be formal or it can be informal. If you're looking for formal opportunities to serve the community, we actually have a list of parachurch ministries and other nonprofits that we think are doing somewhat good work. Some of these were more or less theologically uh, inclined toward but all of them are doing somewhat good work in the social sense of good. We'd encourage you to reach out to them. If you're looking for a formal place that you can serve the community outside the church, just email info at theparkwaychurch.com. DJ can send you a list of all of those ministries from food, uh, food kitchen, food bank sort of things to pregnancy advocacy centers or whatever it might be. But there's also tons, uh, as there are tons of informal opportunities within the church, there's also tons of informal opportunities outside the church. That could be as simple as inviting a coworker over to dinner, or taking a neighbor a meal, or inviting them over for a meal, or offering to help a neighbor fix a fence, or whatever it might be. So serving isn't something that you can just fit into some predefined box. It's not just something that you check off your list. I served this week because I did preschool. Serving is a lifestyle. Serving should be interwoven. It should saturate every aspect of your life. And that brings us to our final question. How should we serve? And in this final section, I just want to give a bunch of miscellaneous tips, some helpful hints for practically applying this discipline to your life. The first one is that I encourage you to serve in ways that you enjoy and are gifted in. This is a really big one. This gives life when I, got, uh, when I got saved at about 23, I realized that I was different from most of my friends. I like to read. I love talking about trying to teach the Bible, but I was absolutely terrified of speaking. Then in, uh, in 2010, not just the act of speaking, public speaking. <laughs> it was like mute or something. <laughs> then in 2010, the pastor of my previous church made me preach, and I found that I actually loved it. And uh, I began to get over this fear of public speaking, and I realized I enjoy this thing. So I get to do it almost every single week, whether it's teaching this class or preaching or something, and that isn't a burden. It's actually a joy for me. Maybe you love inviting people over to your house. Maybe you love evangelism. Maybe you love helping people fix things around their house. Maybe you love teaching the Bible and you want to start an informal Bible study, whatever it might be. Last year, a member of the church who was really gifted and helping to fix stuff, came over to my house probably a total of like 20 days last year to help me basically just rebuild various aspects of the house, patch some walls, replace electrical sockets, those kinds of things. Turns out he genuinely loves those kinds of things, especially because he knows I have almost no intuition 
when it comes to fixing stuff. You know that uh, image of Charlie Brown where he's going to go kick the football? That's me. Every time I think I can fix that, uh, it just gets pulled out and I fall on my... So in fact, my hands are all scraped up because I tried to fix something and I couldn't do it. So, uh, but This guy, he was good at it. So he came over, we hung out, he helped me in an area that he loved. Meanwhile, I got to talk to him, which is something that I love. Here's my point. I think one of the main ways that you should serve is by identifying things that you enjoy and are gifted in and try to run in those lanes as much as you possibly can. The reason I say that is because if every form of service is something that you're just begrudgingly doing, you'll probably eventually run out of steam. I think at least some of the ways that you serve should be in accord with your passions and your giftings. They should give you life. That said, those are some of the ways that you should serve. Let's look at the next point. I think you should also serve in ways you don't inherently enjoy. This is where I want to talk about preschool. Just because I've heard that excuse a lot. I'm not going to volunteer in preschool because I don't like that. Or I'm not gifted in that. Or I already did my, uh, my time when I had young kids. So now I'm in you know, preschool retirement or whatever it might be. If you aren't serving in preschool but for some other reason, you have other Sunday morning responsibilities, you have some sort of physical limitation, you're a felon or a cannibal or something like that, whatever. I'm not talking to you. But if you aren't serving in preschool simply because you don't like it or you don't feel gifted in that area, I would encourage you to reconsider. And I would encourage you to think particularly about how often the Bible is going to connect serving to dying to yourself. Think about the implication of that way of thinking. I'm not going to do this thing because I don't like it or I'm not gifted. And then apply that to other scenarios. I'm not a firefighter. My neighbor's house is on fire. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to call the police. I'm not going to run in to help get their kid out or whatever it might be. I'm not a doctor. If I see a guy passed out, I'm not going to help at all. I'm not a police officer. If I see someone getting mugged, I'm not going to call for help. I'm not going to try to step in. I'm not an Uber driver. If my friend runs out of gas, I'm not wasting my gas. It doesn't work, right? We don't serve just where we have gifts and passions and desires. We serve where there's a need. Here's the deal. If you're only interested in serving in areas that give you life, that you actually enjoy, that you're delighted in, that you have gifts and passions and talents for, you don't really understand serving. In fact, I think you're ultimately serving yourself. As Richard Foster writes, the service disciplines the feelings rather than allowing the feelings to control the service. Jesus didn't like being beaten. He didn't like being crucified. Paul didn't like getting arrested and stoned. I don't like giving away money to the church that I could use on my family. I'm not saying that, that preschool was like you know martyrdom, Jesus being crucified. It might feel like it at times. But I'm saying that your likes, your preferences, your desires, that shouldn't hold much weight when it comes to whether or not we help. Service isn't really about what you like, it's about what's needed. In fact, there are aspects of serving that can't be accomplished if you're only serving in ways that you enjoy. That doesn't crucify the flesh. When I'm up here teaching, I'm not cultivating humility. It's not a humbling thing for me to be up here. In fact, it probably actually stokes my pride to some degree. But when I'm cleaning or unclogging a toilet on Monday so that the staff can use it the rest of the week, that's mortifying my flesh. So I think you should be intentionally looking for opportunities to serve in ways that you don't necessarily enjoy. Helping someone move, all right? Babysitting kids, giving someone a ride, whatever it might be. Look for opportunities to serve that are inconvenient and uncomfortable. It's like working out. If you aren't uncomfortable while working out, you probably aren't getting everything out of that actual workout. Same is true with serving. And that brings us to the next point, which is that you should develop a discipline of serving. Anytime we talk about spiritual disciplines, we need to bear in mind the words of Hebrews that discipline never seems pleasant at the time. I don't love jogging, but I do like the benefits of a healthy heart. I don't inherently love getting up early, but doing so cultivates character and it gives me an opportunity to pray and read and so forth. No discipline is altogether enjoyable. It should involve consistency and it should involve a degree of discomfort and even pain. And you should think of serving as a spiritual discipline. 
That means not only that we should serve in ways that we don't enjoy, as I just mentioned, but also that we should create habits and patterns for serving. We should serve in myriad small ways so that the bigger things are easier when they come. That's where things like letting others cut in front of you in traffic and opening doors for others and so forth is helpful. It cultivates this habit, this habituated pattern. The more that you're acquainted with this routine of serving in small ways, the easier it will be when you face the bigger challenges. All right? I think you should be actively looking for opportunities to serve others. You should ask your coworker if you can bring them coffee. Ask your spouse if you can do the dishes or do the laundry while they take a break. Or ask your community group if you can host or you can stay late to help the host uh, clean up or whatever it might be. In other words, this is a lifestyle. That's part of the reason that we don't have a ton of formal serving opportunities at the church. That's intentional. So that you don't think, I've done my Christian duty. I've got it all done on Sunday. So now I can just go about my life that's devoid of serving. We don't have a ton of formal opportunities. We don't have a, a ton of formal programs so that you're freed to serve in a billion other ways. So that you're free to go and do organic, informal discipleship. When you guard the reputation of others, when you let others serve you, that's a form of serving. When you're courteous and polite, when you have people over to your home, when you listen to someone rather than just wait for a chance to talk, when you share the gospel or you disciple someone, when you babysit someone, when you take meals to families experiencing sickness, whatever it might be. Again, there are myriad opportunities to do this, and therein lies the challenge. As Richard Foster uh, writes, in some ways, we would prefer to hear Jesus' call to deny father and mother houses and land for the sake of the gospel than his word to wash feet. Radical self-denial gives the feel of adventure. If we forsake all, we even have the chance of glorious martyrdom. But in service, we must experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, the trivial. The reality is there is glory in the mundane, the ordinary, and trivial. Fourth, serve without expecting anything in return. It's really easy to serve when you expect something in return. That's called working. That's not called serving. Listen to Jesus' words. Luke 6.35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the great, ungrateful and the evil. There's a great episode of The Office. It's been a while since I quoted The Office. I have withdrawals that makes this point. Dwight, he's trying to get everyone in the office to turn on Jim. So he does them favors, like bringing them food and so forth. But Andy hates to be in anyone's debt. So he's trying to outdo Dwight, and Dwight's trying to outdo him, and it becomes this comical sort of thing the entire episode. They're just escalating their acts of service. Why? Because they weren't thinking of service as really being an act of grace. It's more of this transaction. If you're serving with an expectation of being recognized or being repaid or being rewarded, not in the eternal sense but in the temporal sense, then you're really just serving yourself. See that in the Old Testament, King David says, I won't make a sacrifice that doesn't cost me anything. It's kind of like re-gifting a Christmas gift, right? It doesn't cost you anything. Thus the meaning is somewhat diluted. And that form of service is ultimately rooted in self-righteousness. As Foster writes, self-righteous service fractures community. In the final analysis, once all the religious trappings are removed, it centers in the glorification of the individual. Therefore, it puts others into its debt and becomes one of the most subtle and destructive forms of manipulation known. When you serve with an expectation of being repaid, you actually find yourself enslaved to that payment. Whereas when you serve with no expectation, you actually find yourself liberated. That's why we said earlier that God is the most free being in the world because he needs nothing. The more that we need something, the more that we expect something in return, the less we're actually mirroring God in our service, the more we're actually enslaved to that desire. Fifth, serve in secret. It's a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll see that in a few months when we preach through Matthew. As we talked about before, serving others is ultimately an expression of service toward God. So it really only matters if he sees it. As Jeremy Taylor advises, love to be concealed and to be in little esteemed. Be content to lack praise. Never be troubled when thou art slighted or undervalued. That ties into the idea of serving without expectation because ultimately, 
It isn't without expectation. You and I should be able to serve without repayment now, or without reward now, because we know that there will never be a time when there is not ultimate reward. There is always ultimate reward in heaven. The idea of serving in secret might be one of the more difficult of these little hints because as Richard Foster notes, we read this before in a longer quote, the flesh whines against service, but it screams against hidden service. If I'm going to serve, at least I'm going to get some recognition for it. Sixth, don't forsake service. I'm sorry, don't forsake worship for service. This is a word to all of us, but especially to those who may swing the pendulum too far. Those who are so busy serving that they're neglecting some other duty that they should be doing. A classic example of that is from the story of Mary and Martha from Luke 10. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. So if you're too busy feeding the hungry to read your Bible, or you're too busy serving others to attend worship service, or to pray, or whatever it might be, then something is off. That isn't a huge problem, I don't think, at Parkway, because we take pains to limit that opportunity. For instance, you can only serve one weekend in preschool. But I know at other churches, I know there are people who serve every week, and they don't ever actually attend services. If I were cynical, I might think that they sometimes serve so that they don't have to attend services. I don't think that's uh, happening here all that frequently, but if it is, you need to repent. You're forsaking something that you should be doing in order to do another thing you should be doing. Consider the picture of Isaiah 6. All right, Isaiah chapter 6, he encounters the holy God. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. And only then does he say, here I am, send me. That order can't be reversed. We serve out of an overflow of worship, not as a substitute. For it. As Tozer writes, A.W. Tozer, fellowship with God leads straight to obedience and good works. That is the divine order, and it can never be reversed. Let's pray, and then we'll do some questions. Father, I thank you for the reality that you are a God who serves. And Jesus, you are one who serves. You have served in your condescension in the incarnation you have served in your earthly ministry you have served in your death you serve us in the promise of your return and you will serve us when we are resurrected and so I pray that you would make us people like you I just confess that nothing in our flesh desires to serve and especially not to serve without recognition or repayment and so I pray for really what only you can do by your sovereign grace through your spirit that you would make us into the image of your son. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.